This is Two-Way Street from Georgia Public Broadcasting. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, Georgia musician Adron stops by to play a few songs before setting out for the West Coast. But first, a woman who made a career of saying goodbye. Kay Powell has been called the doyen of the death beat. From 1996 to 2009, she was obituaries editor for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. She's created memorable public legacies for moonshiners, a CEO turned Kmart greeter, a model air craft designer, the planet Pluto, and Flannery O'Connor's Peacock, among many, many others. And she continues to do that work today. Kay Paul, I'm so glad you could join us. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Well, it was lovely. I just met you on Friday night uh, at the Bitter Southerner Party. And when we met, we were comparing Burt Reynolds' obits in the various different newspapers. When you read an obituary, what are, what are you looking for? I wanted to bring the person back to life. I want to learn something about them that I didn't know, the general public probably didn't know, even members of the family didn't know. I wanted to be truthful. If I see one thing in there that I know not to be true, it sort of undermines the credibility of all the rest of the uh, obit. But I read some pretty well-written ones. (laughs) Well, that's good to know. Well, I'm envious of them. I always wish I could write that well. Well, uh, I think you have a pretty good track record so far. And you were a reporter at the Valdosta Daily Times before you joined the AJC as copy editor or copywriter? No. Um, And yes, I did get my start at my hometown newspaper, the Valdosta Daily Times. My whole background was in hard news coverage. And... I actually joined the AJC as a administrative assistant, I guess you'd call it, in journal editorial before they combined the two editorial boards. And one thing led to another. Because of my relationship with readers, Ron Martin asked me if I'd take over his concept for a revamped obits page. And I said, ooh, goody, goody. Well, you were happy about that because, you know, there's a joke in journalism that the obits desk is where reporters go to die. Either uh, green reporters go there or reporters they don't know what to do with that are at the end of the career go. But that is really changing. So you began your day looking at death notices? Yes. Well, and how did you assign which ones to whom and which ones did you choose to do? We had both the family place death notices in the AJC and I had developed a form that I sent to all the funeral homes in the readership area. And they could fill those out and fax them in to us in the little section on there for biographical information. So they might write in something of interest about the person. Basically, Virginia, I thought, if I want to know more about this person, then the reader will, too. Hmm. So you'd have to have that conversation with members of the grieving family. You'd have to do research. I'm, I'm wondering how... What kind of questions you asked people to get beyond the, he was a beloved father, or, you well, know, you the don't, you let them say all that. You start out with a call to the family, immediately establish your uh, credibility, the reason you're calling, that you're not there to sell them a subscription, why you want to talk to them and write about this person. They've all created a drama in their minds where they're the central character in this death and they have planned out what they think and what they say. 
and you just let them say it because if you don't, they will continually interrupt your interview until they get their whole drama played out. Mm. So you approach this very much as a reporter, right? Well, I was a reporter. Obits were in the newsroom. We were is as important a part of the newsroom as a government beat or a school beat or anything else. But I would think of people writing eulogies, for example. They want to bring out the best in a person. I mean, do people want the truth in an obituary? Yes, they do, and there's research to back that up, that people want to be want their death notice or obit to accurately reflect their life warts and all. So tell the truth. Yes. Listen to people, let them talk, and then you then you go to work. I start my questions. So yes. what are what are the other rules, if you can say, for, for <laughs> well, writing an obituary? Um, fact check, like any news uh, story that you're writing, check the archives for background. Always in an obit, we got outside voices. You talk to people beyond the family because you want it to be multidimensional. And I had situations where the family would tell me one thing, and then I'd talk to friends, and they'd say, oh, no, he never did that. No, he did not. (laughs) So if it's minor enough, you just leave it alone. It's not worth putting in there. Were there any particular embellishments that you'd hear a lot about people, you know? uh, No, everybody goes through the same old common... Beloved wife and mother. Um, free spirit. Renaissance man, yeah, free spirit. Southern Belle would give you the shirt off his back. One of my friends who wrote obits in Colorado, when people would say, oh, he'd give you the shirt off your back, um, he'd say, really? Tell me about the time that he did that. So you let them get through all the cliches, but you don't use them in the obit. And then you go to work. Here, Here is an opening line for you. Pluto, the least of the major celestial bodies, never asked to be a planet. <laughs> Your obit for Pluto. I'll tell you how I feel about my writing is I, I see the lead as the coat hanger the rest of the story hangs on. So... I really work hard on the lead, and I learned over time that shorter leads are better leads. I want to grab your attention, pull you into the story, and then move you right along to the finish. Well, this one grabbed me. George Hopkins died again Friday. Yes, yes. He was a delightful person. How how did you come up with that one? Because he did. (laughs) He died before. Yes, he had. He, during World War II, he tested underwater diving equipment. Those big old canvas suits with the heavy metal. Right. And he actually died underwater in that suit. And they brought him back up, got him on the deck, and resuscitated him. He went on to become a well-known Atlanta lawyer and had a pretty good sense of humor. His children went to a private school here. Came home one day complaining about the teacher and homework and complaint, complaint. And the, the teacher had told them they didn't have a license to complain. So that night, he prepared a legal license to complain for every <laughs> child in the class. 
My guest is Kay Powell. She's an award-winning obituary writer and former obituaries editor for the AJC and spent a career uncovering and writing about the extraordinary lives of ordinary people. And that's the thing, Kay. You know, uh, plenty of the people that you wrote about were not luminaries or celestial bodies, for that matter, but regular folks. And that was by design. Well, tell me more about that. Why did you not go for the big celebrity obituaries? Well, those were written in our paper. Usually if somebody was famous, notable, well-known, unique, outstanding in a field, then a reporter that covered them wrote it, or we'd have an advance obit on them. Or if it was a national figure, we'd probably use the wire story. Our whole concept in revamping the obits page was to write about ordinary, everyday people to have a very democratic obits page. Can you think of any democratic as they were that were particularly memorable to you? Some discoveries that you just thought, oh, that's it. That's the detail I need. Well, first of all, I went to my editor one night and said, Laura, I have got to have more space. I just have fallen in love with this man. (laughs) And she said, Kay, you fall in love with all of them. You've got to start falling in love with them when they're alive. The stories I love to tell, Virginia, were those backstories to parts of uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and national history. The unsung heroes that played a role and changing the law. For example, the married woman who was not allowed to teach after she married Mm -hmm. because the law back then said teachers had to be single. She sued the state of Georgia, and the law got changed. And just different people like that. Um, Miramax Tea Room that everybody loves to go to, not a bank in town would loan her money. It was her sisters who financed that. And that's become the iconic, you know, southern food place to go and eat here. And just different stories like that. When Mr. Gordy that founded the um, uh, varsity, he gave his wife a household allowance out of his barbershop money. And she was such a good saver. When he went to open the varsity in Athens, He borrowed the money from his wife to build varsity in Athens. And there was a man, too, who worked for the state health department that led the fight. I mean, just an ordinary daily worker led the fight to get a pasteurized milk in Georgia. They're just amazing details in these stories. But you bringing up something that uh, I noticed that you write about women or in general, not in reference to the men that they're married to, as, as living their own lives. Don't was, write Mrs. Him obits. They can, family can handle that in the family place death notice. That's something that the a Society of Obituary Writers recognized you for. You have a 2010 <laughs> Life Achievement Award. And part of it is about giving a different gender balance to obituaries. Was that a decision on your part? Well, I won't say I set out to do it consciously, but if I saw a good story in them, yes, I was going to write about it. We did two of the major criticisms listed against, or often cited back then against 
uh, obits was number one, they were all about men. Number two, we wrote, we meaning journalists, wrote too many obits about our own instead of ordinary people. And even here in Atlanta, if we'd have 60 to 80 people a day, and you could only write about one or two, some days three. That means there's another 70 or 50 or so that aren't being written about. So well, we wanna, hard calls We want to get to them, uh, you know, putting a word count on someone's life. That's so, a pretty hard but call. Y- yes, I did work very hard to get diversity on the page, to write about the various communities here, represent various communities and ethnicities, sex, gender and all like that. Kay Powell is with us. She's a winner of a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Society of Obituary Writers, as I mentioned. I'm Virginia Prescott, and we're coming back in just a minute with Kay on GPB. This is Two Way Street from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. At last check, the human mortality rate is stuck at 100%. And that figure has kept my guest Kay Powell busy since 1996. That's when she took up the post as obituaries editor at the AJC, and she still gets hired to give the final word and to write obituaries, and is definitely the person I would want to write mine. Kay, you made a couple of posters to hang on your desk copy at the AJC. One said, God is my assignment editor. Yes. (laughs) The other, eat right, exercise, die anyway. Yes. Now, are we to assume that obit writers share a kind of gallows humor? Yes, we do. We see every aspect of life in all kinds of situations. And you don't make fun of it because it's ironic or or whatever. It's just that we see life that way. Things happen. And and this is common, I think, to all reporters, you know. So, yeah, we we have sometimes a pretty dark sense of humor, what but it it's like? realistic. What What is it like when you all get together? What is this membership of this society? Well, it's an international group, and... We people love to hear the backstory, and so we tell the backstory on a lot of things we've covered or what we know about other situations. Compliment each other on their uh, what they've written. We have experts either within the group or from outside come talk to us. Um, now we have uh, there's a. It's a closed membership, but it's easy to get on it. Uh, Society of Professional Obit Writers Facebook page, and that keeps us in daily contact. Questions come up, people post obits that they've really liked, so that sort of is the tie that binds right now. But we're a fun group. <laughs> We really are. A fun group of, uh, what is it? I saw the film Obits, uh, the documentary, and they were called Well-Read Grim Reapers. <laughs> right, right. In fact, our awards, uh, writing awards, are called the Grammys. And Vanessa Gold, whose um, film Obit is, at our last conference in Chicago, we call them ObitCon, uh, we had a showing of Obed, and Vanessa was there and led the discussion, and it was very, very good. Well, when you are 
dealing with life and death on a daily basis. I guess it's mostly death. Well, (laughs) all right, death, but excavating the details of a life. What does that give you a sort of perspective about living life on a daily basis? No, you pretty much know that already. I mean, if you look at the few newspapers that have obit desks, obit editors, obit writers left, we're not children. We're not green. We're experienced. I always said that was part of my value at the AJC. I had lived in Georgia all my life. I knew the state. I knew people in the state. I knew stories in the state. All that background and experience in my age had a value. I was so happy doing what I was doing. Plus, when you're the opits editor, they're not any young Turks nipping at your heels <laughs> trying to take your job away from you. Well, you did leave uh, in a buyout in 2009. And as you said, not all papers, or as you alluded to, not all papers run them anymore. The LA Times no longer runs obituaries. They're away with their entire obits department. Well, so now people are submitting their own obituaries that they're writing for their family members often. You are often called upon to advise them on how to write. What do you, what do you say to those people who are submitting their own? Well, I sort of work the other side of the street now, Virginia, since I'm not uh, connected with any of the media. Families contact me to write obits. Groups contact me to come and talk to them about obit writing. And I'm trying to move the needle on family-written obits and funeral home-written death notices that moves them more towards the journalistic obit style in being a lively read, being accurate, not being just a resume, not being just a chronological list of their lives. So what was your original question? I think I I think it was how you advise people who are writing obituaries, you know, what do you want to see? How do you counsel them on writing an effective obituary? Be honest. And I had one family that hired me to write an advance obit. Didn't want a particular thing about a family member mentioned. However, that particular thing, and I'm not giving you personal details because this person is still alive. I don't want to identify the family. But the situation with this particular fact, uh, family member was the motivator for the person I was writing about to do everything they did. Hmm. And I had to convince the family that it had to be in their death notice one family member's situation because that was the motivator for the person I was writing about to do everything they did. And you want it to answer questions, not raise questions in somebody's mind. But those may be very uncomfortable truths for families, the kind of things that they don't talk about. That are... So what? They shouldn't have done it in the first place <laughs> if they didn't want it in the obit. Recently, I read an obit where a man had a son listed as a son with a different last name. My mind immediately goes to, was it an illegitimate child? Was it a foster child? Was it an adopted child? And if he adopted him, why doesn't he have his last name? 
all sorts of questions raised in my mind just by that one little item well, now, that didn't explain. Now, of course, there's a big push for these to go viral, right? People are writing the most uh, outrageous or funny or clever obits possible. Um, some well, of them... I would say attempting to be clever. Very few of them actually work. Well, I read a super touching one from a five-year-old, Garrett Mathias, who died of cancer, who wrote his own obituary. This is a trend that I think started a couple of years ago. So when you see those, you know, people writing their own obituaries in advance, do, do you think that's something you want to do? Have you written your obituary? No, and I don't intend to. Who would you like to write it? Well, Candace Dyer, who's a writer, she's known a lot for her work with um, Atlanta Magazine and a bunch of other publications up at Bernanau. Well, you just, you know, carrying on one day. And I said, you're in charge of writing my obit. And she said, okay, you're right now. So we're waiting to see who dies first and gets that assignment. <laughs> I just but, have, go ahead. But when you talk about people writing their own obits and especially putting them on um, social media, I came across this. I was a volunteer at Kipps Drive Academy for its Kipps Scribes, a writing program for students. I was a volunteer. And I talked to the student I was working with about that. And he said, yeah, I know people who've done that. He said a friend of mine's brother was killed in a just street, you know, random shooting, hmm. killed him. And the surviving brother was so moved by that. He wanted to be sure when it happened to him, when it happened to him. Boy, that's heartbreaking that his life would be recorded and be recorded accurately. And so you do find a lot of younger people writing them and putting them online. But yes, people are, <clears throat> ones like Harry Stamps obit that went viral that was written by his daughter is wonderful. That one works. Um, Doris Cully Gibson's that was written by her family is wonderful. It works. A lot of them that I read, read just like they're trying to write this so that it will go viral and it just doesn't work. It just strikes me that you're looking at people's lives and in a sense, giving them a story, giving people something to hang on to that they will carry on. They will retell the story in that kind of way. You've summarized it for them. And I'm wondering if you get a lot of responses from people who oh my you know, may gosh. hold on to these obituaries. I or... would get letters after letters, and you can almost mark the day from my files that people went to emailing me responses instead of writing letters. They would blow them up and put them on a bull, um, easel at the entrance to the funerals. They'd make copies and bury them with the copies. Before the Internet was so popular, I'd get letters from Japan and Saudi Arabia. Somehow people had spread the word without the benefit of social media. It was surprising back then. It's not a biography. It's not a eulogy. It's an obituary that's an entirely different animal. And the reason they should be accurate is because they do hang around for generations and become very important in genealogical research and for other uses. I, uh, 
I don't know if I should tell you this, but I will. I think you should. Leaving leaving the Bitter Southerner <clears throat> event at the High Museum, I was going to the parking garage in one elevator. They have two of them side by side. Getting off, two women in there had started a conversation with me, and I was holding the door open as I stood outside of it, finishing in our conversation. A woman got out of the elevator on the other side, and our timing was... I turned around to walk at the same time she did, and she just turned to me and said, you're my favorite writer. And we had a long conversation about it. And I thought, I haven't had a byline on the story in nine years. I don't know this woman. She loves obit. She loves reading obits. She happened to like reading mine in the AJC. And we have what Carlos Campus called uh, he wasn't part of the obits desk. He was one of the editors in the newsroom. Phobits, friends of obits, and they're everywhere in every age. You mentioned the um, model airplane builder. Mm -hmm. After that story ran, I got a letter from what first or second grade class saying, they loved the obit. Did I know how I could get in touch with his son to come talk to their class about him? <laughs> in the same way that people pass around the obits of famous people, these are not necessarily famous people. But you are giving their life the same kind of dignity or treatment or attention that big names, quote unquote, get. What, what does that mean to you, Kay? There's value in every life, and there's a story in every life. I frankly said, I don't care how important you are. I care how interesting you are. And that's what I look for. What was, what was it that caught my attention about that person's life? What was the most difficult obit you ever wrote? I know you wrote your mother's. Well, that... <laughs> I always said I didn't want to write the obit for or give the eulogy for anybody I knew because I would forever feel like what I had done was inadequate. I could have done better. I could have done more. But my sisters insist that I write Mama's obit. So I just sat down and wrote down just bullet points of everything about Mama, and then sat down and wrote the obit, and then sat everybody down around the dinner table and said, this is it. Comments now forever hold your peace. And they liked it, so. Except for one person who's no longer with the family. She wanted me to drop the toothbrush line. Well, I love that line. In fact, after she was widowed, there were 13 toothbrushes in her bathroom, all kept there by people who regularly enjoyed her company. Paints a picture, I as you see. <laughs> I left it in. And that's the first thing people know. The two most common comments I get when people approach me and know who I am or find out who I am. One, they all mention the Pluto the Planet obit. And two, they mention uh, Mama's obit with the 13 toothbrushes. I did a talk in a small South Georgia town, and a man from Florida had come up to hear my talk. And he sought me out before the talk, and he said, I love obits. I've got a database of over 2 million obits that I have access to. 
Did you know your mama's is the only one that mentions toothbrushes? <laughs> so just the details make the difference. Details bring this the story alive. Well, you know, Pluto might be coming back as a planet, so you could uh, Pluto could also die. Raising the dead, are they? <laughs> As you do, Kate Powell. Thank you so much for speaking with us. I have just had a delightful time. I appreciate your interest in the dead. Kate Powell is the doyen of the death beat. She was obituaries editor for the AJC and still writes them for hire and always on deadline. Stay with us for a much less final goodbye. Georgia singer-songwriter Adron fires her parting shot before moving to L.A. She's going to play some music and talk about losing the fear of making earnest music. That's when Two-Way Street returns on GBB. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is Two-Way Street. I'm Virginia Prescott. Local artist Adron sang her Atlanta swan song this month. After making three albums and spending most of her life in Georgia, the singer-songwriter has relocated to Los Angeles. But before packing up her guitar and signature whistle, Adron joins us in the studio to play a few songs and talk about her new album, Water Music. Adron, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being here. And you brought your guitar. I did indeed. I'm excited about that (laughs) for proof. Well, congratulations on the new record. To me, it feels like that perfect kind of summery soundtrack, kind of sunny and breezy and splashy, which I guess is what water music should be. Splashy. I like that. Yes. what What were you going for? I wanted to create a feeling of the kind of like mid to late 1970s studio culture Um, which is an era of music that I'm very, very deeply into. Those sounds are just so crisp and delicious, um, but just a little bit dusty, uh, but with all these virtuosic players. And I'm thinking of albums like like Joni Mitchell's Court and Spark, Mm -hmm. things like that. Um, I wanted to kind of create a feeling of that kind of studio culture that's just like these ambitious compositions, but really deliberately and lushly rendered, Um, but not so much so that you just feel like overwhelmed with pretension or something. (laughs) It's like trying to just create lush environments for me, really, with, with sound. And also at the same time, I'm evoking the ocean and equatorial places. Yeah, the, yeah. The images yeah. of the sea are really, they're woven throughout. I've never lived near a body or near an ocean, actually. So all of it is like kind of fantasy for me and just sort of evoking like a fantasy island kind of kind of vibe. <laughs> um, so. That's a seven, good 70s reference as well. Was that 70s or 80s? Oh, I don't even island? know. Actually, I'm too young to even know what I just said. <laughs> so, fantasy but, Island was this program, you know, oh, it was like a... God. Where it was your fantasies could come true. Oh my gosh. And you flew in by plane. Guest stars flew in every week and were <laughs> oh greeted by Ricardo Montalblan. And I can't remember the name of the man who played with him, but he would say, Welcome to Fantasy Island. Oh, that sounds deliciously cheesy. It was really cheesy. <laughs> but let's hear something that's not. The first song in the album is called Be Like the Sea. i 
a little clip from Be Like the Sea from my guest Adron, and the album is called Water Music. And that does, that sounds like, I don't know, I was thinking Maria Muldor, Midnight My mother the said the same exact thing. That's well, so because funny. we're old, Adron. <laughs> That's what happens. <laughs> but the lyrics there, I vote for total upheaval for generous people, for niceness is so profound. That's what I said. Yeah, well, <laughs> at the beginning of this year, you told Bullet Magazine that last year was pretty crummy year for you. Uh, it was challenging, I would say. So this feels like you're going to swim beyond that cruddiness or in, in favor of a lightheartedness and generosity and niceness. Yeah, and it feels like it's in the works right now. Um, by the time this, this piece airs, my life will be in total upheaval. I will have just moved to Los Angeles. I'll be in a very different state of mind. Right now, I'm kind of just like plugging away, trying to put all the pieces together to make that happen. Um, that's kind of been my year so far. So I was a little unpleasant to be around for a couple months just recently. <laughs> just like a little stress ball trying to make everything happen for the album's release. But I'm ready to kind of dive back into the the original feeling of what the music is about for me, which is just um, kind of just like transcendent and almost rebellious joy is kind of what I'm going for. Rebellious joy. I really like that. Yeah. So in other words, like rejecting all of the stuff that's kind of bringing you down. Yeah. Rejecting crap, you know. <laughs> You are most associated, especially, I guess, with your last album, with Tropicalia music. This is a Brazilian genre of music, and it's always somewhere where you're described, I've noticed. Yeah. So let's hear, this is a classic Tropicalia song, giving our listeners a little bit more of an idea of that genre. That is Caetano Veloso singing Alegria, Alegria. And on the more rockin' end of the spectrum of Tropicalia music, there is this. This is um, Os Mutantes, the band that you first were introduced to with uh, Brazilian music? Yeah, I would say that that particular song was the catalyst for me. That was kind of a occasion for like the supernova that it occurred in my mind and heart um, when I discovered Tropicalia and Brazilian music in general. Um, this is called A Minha Menina, which is My Girl by Os Mutantes. Yes. Yeah, so Os Mutantes was a massively influential band for me. Uh, I heard that song for the first time when I was like 13 or 14. Um, I had just picked up a guitar for the first time like a year prior. I was obviously knew I wanted to write songs and be something with regard to that. I hadn't really figured out what it was going to be like, but as soon as that music hit me, um, I became obsessed and it completely influenced the way I started to learn guitar. I'm wondering how you learned that song. I mean, you heard that song when you were 13. I heard that song actually in the background of a documentary on VH1 or something that was about Beck, who I was obsessed with at the time. And I heard just like a clip of that and I was like, what the heck is that? Um, and then just sort of like by a kismet encounter it again when I was just digging for eclectic weird stuff at a record store. Was that a habit, uh, digging for eclectic weird stuff at record stores? Kind of. I, uh, I remember on that particular day I went into Wax Tree Records in Decatur, Georgia, still a very beloved record store for me. And was just me. like, yeah, just with this intention of um, finding something that would like seem like a really cool, obscure reference for me to drop in the future. <laughs> you know, I'm a teenager and trying to cultivate, I don't know, hip personality. 
That's a musician, Adrian, who uh, through the magic of radio is with us now. But when you hear this, she will be living in Los Angeles. She is actually going to come back to Atlanta next month on tour for her new album, which is called Water Music. Well, a couple of years ago, Os Mutantes, that band performed at the Earl and you got to perform with them. How yes. did that how did that come together? Oh, my God. That was maybe one of the very coolest things that's happened to me in my life. Um, I have a great relationship with the Earl. They have always been very kind to me over the years. And I just sort of begged them. I was like, can I please open for Os Mutantes? And they were like, yeah, that makes sense. Um, was kind of the answer. So uh, so that happened. And what came of it was um, the, the original founding member who was in that version of the band, Sergio Diaz, listened to my whole set. He reportedly cried during my set mm. in front of the sound engineer as they enjoyed my music. And then, uh, and then he brought me up on stage for their encore song, which was um, one of the first songs by them I'd ever heard, Panisis Yoxensis. And I like wept on stage while singing it with them. And it was triumphant, beautiful moment. Uh, after that, we stayed in touch, and he actually asked me to join the band. Wow. And uh, I was, oh, my God. It was so insane. I was getting, like, my visa ready to go to Brazil and rehearse with them. And it would have been my first time going to Brazil ever uh, as a member of my favorite band of all time. And then, unfortunately, it just kind of fell apart. Their tour plans just didn't materialize the way they were supposed to, and that plan just kind of dissolved, sadly. But you still had your your cry fest on stage at the Earl, mm -hmm. both of you. Yeah, and I got to know that uh, that Usman thought of me in that way as kind of a member of the family, and that I don't know, it's just something I'll treasure forever. That's beautiful. And and you do sing in Portuguese, or at least you did on your last record, N not on this one. So why not? Uh, yeah, it, it's sort of. Um, it's sort of just happenstance, but I often do write and sing in Portuguese. Uh, I like to think of the language as sort of another instrument. But um, as it happened with the, th the songs on this record, a lot of my headspace was more in kind of um, uh, American soul music from the 70s and 80s. And also I'm drifting more these days towards composing uh, with an intention to be more just sort of directly communicative with my audience. And... Most of my audience is still at this point English speaking. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm kind of working a little bit harder on like the stories and what am I telling you and does it matter to you and things like that. Um, but there is a song on the new record that's in French. Uh, it's called Ma Mère. Yes. My Ocean? Uh, yeah, also My Mother. Your Mother. Because the word Mère can, it can mean be the, either uh, one depending on how you spell it. Yeah. Uh, so it's a love letter to the ocean. I'm wondering if you, if there's a kind of a different version of yourself you, as singer, songwriter, or person in each of those languages. Can you inhabit something else in another language? Yeah, actually, sometimes I use it to like disguise a little bit. Like if I'm writing about something that's, I don't know, that I'm just not really ready to tell you in English, I can kind of have a little secret that no one who knows me will will really you know, decipher. Like, especially there are a couple of really sad songs that I've written, and I don't really like to be publicly sad. I feel like it gives too much power to the thing that hurts. And and I kind of stand by that, even though I know it's not what, like, a yoga teacher would tell me to do. <laughs> but 
They would say to be vulnerable yeah. and connect with the human side. And I'm doing, I feel like I'm doing my version of that. But then I have a couple of songs that are in Portuguese that are about something just really personal and really sad. And it helps me record it and remember it. And if you care enough, you can, you know, decipher it and share that experience with me. But it still kind of belongs to me in a way. So there's a little bit of a mask there. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, in the artistic sense, I'm not yeah. saying that you're being phony or anything like that, which gets cast aside and your new record, Water Music. The first single you released from the Water Music album is called Your Habitat. Could you play Your Habitat for us? I would love to. performed here in the GPB studio by Adron. It's from her record called Water Music. I love that bit. And if you have trouble believing in the sentiment of this song, you could pretend it's the 70s. Yep. <laughs> so, so that calls to mind for me uh, sort of slightly faded uh, film clips of couples walking along over bridges where the leaves fall down and yes. <laughs> onto the water. What, what yeah, is it about like that? Intro credits, you know that Cooper Bold font. <laughs> Definitely. You know yes. Yeah. Some some bell bottoms in there somewhere. Yeah. That kind of thing. What is it about the 70s that evokes that? Is it that those that sort of California sound of music? Maybe. I feel like to me there's a embrace of the sentimental um, in that era that I relate to. Yeah, we, I got miss, a, we got yeah. a little bit jaded about sentimentality after that. For sure, yeah. And I feel like it's starting to come back a little bit. I feel like the kind of... Um, the, the craze for, like, distanced irony of the 90s and 2000s is, like, just starting to dissipate a little bit. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of my friends are into some, like, very, very earnest, you know, on-the-sleeve music nowadays, which is refreshing. Well, beyond the singing, I, and I hear that Joni Mitchell phrasing a little bit in there. You said you were really, uh, Court and Spark was a big record big for deal, you. Big deal, yes. Beyond the singing, though, you make a lot of sounds. You didn't in this one, but 
whistle that that sounds less human and more like a tropical bird. How did you discover your talent for whistling? Um, great question. I have no idea. I have, I cannot remember starting to do that. Um, I will offer that I'm just sort of a person who habitually emits sounds all the time. <laughs> um, whether you're just like in the car or in the shower, I'm just sort of like screwing around with just like sounds all the time. So I have a, quite a few like weird little parlor tricks up my sleeve, but whistling is one of my favorites. And I, I don't know, maybe in my teens, I just started doing it all the time. Can you can you whistle on command? Would you? Mm -hmm. little? Sure. You're a really good whistler. Thank you. You could, you could, you and Andrew Bird, you know, the musician Andrew oh, Bird, you must have. Oh, yeah. Him. He's a fantastic whistler. I'm aware. I've actually publicly offered to um, battle him in a whistling duel, <laughs> and that offer stands. But we'll see if he takes me up on it. Be warned, Andrew Bird. <laughs> this could happen. So when this conversation does air, we mentioned you're going to be in Los Angeles. Um, and your music is... I think nostalgic for another era in many ways and for Brazilian music from the late 1960s. Do you think you'll feel nostalgic for Atlanta? Absolutely. Yeah, I love Atlanta very much. And um, it's bittersweet tearing myself away from it because Atlanta has been so good to me um, and shown me so much support um, during my time here. And I'm going to miss, you know, the muggy humidity and the cicadas and, you know, all these Things that feel so Atlanta to me, but uh, it feels like it's time to start a new adventure, and I definitely get the wanderlust every few years pretty hard, but I'll be back quite often. Yeah, I know you're going to be at the uh, City Winery. You're going to have maybe another gig in Alpharetta in, what, October, I think? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm working on a tour in October that's going to start out of Atlanta, and on the 3rd of October, I'm opening for my dear friend Lear Lynn uh, at the City Winery in Atlanta. So I highly recommend everybody come out to that. So this is a very big move for you. I mean, I'm sure there's career uh, involved in this, as you said, some wanderlust. Uh, mm -hmm. Is it scary? Um, it's a little scary. It's not as scary as the whole like last summer and spring have been. Um, it's not as scary as putting out a brand new record. Um, so right now I'm kind of riding a sense of relief that this process is over. And now I just get to go and, you know, zoom across the country and experience something completely amazing and completely new. So I'm feeling very positive, very optimistic. This makes me think of Woody Guthrie's song, Going Where the Climate Suits My Clothes. I think you're going to Los Angeles where the climate suits your music. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and here's hoping. Well, before you go, there is a bonus track you are thinking about releasing later on. And it's called Water Music, which mm -hmm. is the title of the record. Would you mind playing it for us? I would love to. And I want to thank you so much for joining us and wish you the absolute best in Los Angeles. Thank you so much for having me. I woke from a dream where the sea drew back its shore. I was so sure The husbands and wives tried to turn the deadly tide. Land was so dry, animals died from the 
now Los Angeles-based and until very recently Atlanta-based musician Adron. Her new album, Water Music, is out now, and you can find more about her and her music and her upcoming tour back in Atlanta at gpbnews.org. Go, go. 